Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Time to bring clarity to the chaos. Today we look at the book of Enoch with Michael Heiser, and we have a moment of prophecy with James Collins. The Bible, as we hold it today, is esteemed to be the inspired, inerrant Word of God. This doctrinal position affirms that the Bible is unlike all other books or collections of works in that it is free of error due to having been given by inspiration of God. While no other text can claim this same unique authority, the Book of Enoch is an ancient Jewish religious work which played a crucial role in forming the worldview of the authors of the New Testament. Author and Bible scholar Michael Heiser joins Pastor Larry to unpack the Book of Enoch and what significance it has to Christian believers today. Dr. Michael S. Heiser is our guest. Mike Heiser is one of my favorite scholars. He is carefully trained in Hebrew and the Semitic languages. That enables him to access a vast world of biblical truth. Because of his training, he can bring us many, many insights. I really appreciate Mike. We do have a special package deal for our listeners. We're offering the Book of Enoch, an ancient Jewish religious work ascribed by tradition to Enoch, the great-grandfather of Noah. It's a book that played a crucial role in forming the worldview of the authors of the New Testament. So they were familiar with it and quoted it in the New Testament, and so it's a very important item of their background. In addition to the Book of Enoch, we have a companion to the Book of Enoch, Volumes 1 and 2. It's a reader's commentary on Enoch by Dr. Heiser. Mike Heiser, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Mike, many of our listeners know that you are receiving chemo, and we certainly want to pray for you. We've been praying for you at Southwest Radio Church. We do want to hold you up in prayer. You're a great asset to the kingdom of God, and We want to see you writing many more books, giving many more lectures. So maybe just give us the latest, if you will. I'm certainly, as the believer, I'm not afraid to die. But as I've told the Lord and other people, I'm going to feel really cheated. (laughs) 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 There's so much to do, so much I want to do, so much that I look at the church that needs to be done. So I'm in chemo. The specific strategy is I have pancreatic cancer, but... Fortunately, I have the operable variety. Mm, wow. So I have a mass that's over and on the pancreas. So that has to be shrunk to create some distance between it and things like major arteries. Right. Once it's shrunk through chemo, it can be surgically removed. So that's the strategy. I've been through three mm. chemo cycles. If you meet somebody that's gone through chemotherapy, it's devastating. It is all the awful things that people say. So just hold those people up that that you know in these sorts of situations because it's difficult. It's it's doable but very difficult. And so we pray that the therapies will work as they're intended, as devastating as they are to your body with that outcome in mind. Specifically, my issues are going to be maintaining weight, maintaining appetite to eat so I don't get too underweight. So all these sorts of practical things are good to pray about on my behalf. I'd like to lead us right now in a moment of prayer, and friends, please join with us as well. Father, we hold up our brother, Mike Heiser. We thank you so much for him. We pray that you would intercede in a mighty way, in a powerful way, 
Father, it's our desire that our brother continue in ministry, and we know that he's very courageous, and even that he has volunteered himself for these programs. We pray that you would give him strength and that we would hear a good report of his healing and blessing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. Mike, if the book of Enoch were written by Enoch, it would be a very, very ancient book. Now, what is the nature? <laughs> what is the nature of the tradition that ascribes it to Enoch? Is it reliable? The tradition is part of something you know larger that scholars refer to as pseudonymity or pseudepigraphical literature. That mm. is, material would get written by someone important in the community, right. and then either because the main character is a biblical figure, that's how it would get its name. So oh, I see. having a name on a biblical book is not an immediate indication of authorship. Like we have First <laughs> and Second Samuel. There's nowhere in the book that Samuel claims to have written the book, but he's the central character. Joshua, same thing. So it's common to do this, and that's usually where the tradition begins, right. just who's the central focus. Right. So you called it pseudepigrapha. Yeah. Pseudepigrapha does not mean false writings, like, oh, stay away from that stuff. Right. It means that the name that goes on a lot of these books, you know, you shouldn't be taking them as authorial designations, you know, that in terms of the author name having authority as far as, you know, right. being the one who composed the book. Right. But New Testament writers, as I point out in the commentary, I think it's in the first volume, and I think we do this a little bit in reversing Hermon as well, if I recall correctly. But there's a very long list of places in the New Testament that allude to, and in some cases quote, this very material, what mm. the material that we would today would call pseudepigraphical material. Right. So they were well aware of it, they used it, they benefited from it, it, it could help their thinking to articulate something in Scripture that, that we do hold as sacred and canonical. The writers would use it, again, because of its communicative value. Right. So maybe you could expound why are you so interested in an ancient book or writing that is not canonic? Now, I remember several years ago, I asked you this question, and you had a really good answer. So uh, <laughs> why are you so interested in a non-canonic book? <laughs> See that other interview. <laughs> <laughs> right. We'll listen to that one. I mean, the short answer is we have to realize that biblical writers read books. And they're not functional illiterates. They're allowed to read books. Paul quotes from secular pagan Greek poets. The Old Testament occasionally will quote from the Baal cycle. Right. I mean, no one's arguing that the Baal cycle should be part of the Bible. It's just they were literate. They read books, and they responded to the content of those books, or they found something in those books very useful hmm. to express you know, something to their own audience. And in Enoch's case, let's just take the Book of Life, the whole idea of the Book of Life, is something that gets a lot of attention in the Book of Enoch, but it doesn't get any attention in the Old Testament. I mean, there's, don't blot me out of your book. Well, there's five or six different books in the Old Testament that the Bible credits with God keeping track of what happens to us in our lives. And it's not just works, it's just everything. But the specific Book of Life, that actually is something that is mentioned by name in Enoch and gets a lot of attention. And the places the New Testament that associated with the lake of fire and the punishment of fallen angels, that comes directly out of the book of Enoch and not the Old Testament. So wow. it's a very good illustration of, of like, wow, you know, here's this book that I don't ascribe canonical status to, and right. I would say neither did New Testament writers. But they're looking at it, 
and they're using it. And so that alone makes it important. You know, we have to realize that what these books are, Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, all this sort of stuff, is you have people in the Jewish community that consider the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the Word of God, and they're spending a great deal of time on trying to look at the data points in the Hebrew Bible and make sense of them. They're trying to do theology with them. So these books that they write have been left to us as a record of how they're thinking about scriptures that we do think are inspired. Hmm. You know, the Old Testament, how did they think about it? And that gives us great insight onto how we might read an Old Testament passage or how we might put two Old Testament passages together for greater understanding on our own part and in our own day. We know from Romans 5 and other passages that sin entered the world through Adam. Now, Enoch doesn't deny that, but doesn't first Enoch talk about something very determinative happening on Mount Hermon? Oh, yeah. First Enoch, which is the academic way of referring to the book of Enoch more popularly, spends a lot of time on Genesis 6, 1 through 4, really Genesis yes. 6, 1 through 5, you know, to include the human corruption there. And that is not unique. There are a lot of books within the intertestamental period, first few centuries before the New Testament, that fixate on Genesis 6. You're right in your observation. They don't deny human responsibility for sin in Genesis 3. But they're far more concerned with the Genesis 6 episode because they view that as leading to the proliferation of depravity on the earth Mm. and lots of other things like the giants and so on and so forth. But it's the depravity issue that really is their main focus of concern. Wow, that's fascinating. I'm reading from First Enoch chapter 6 now, and it certainly sounds like Genesis 6, a time long ago when the children of men multiplied, and it says in those days there were beautiful daughters, and quote, and the children of heaven saw and lusted after them, and they all bound themselves by oath not to abandon their plan. And then it says in chapter 7 that these women became pregnant and bare giants whose height was 3,000 L's. Now, what is 3,000 L's in our language? And tell us a little bit about what I just read. Like I said, it sounded very much like Genesis 6, especially verse 4. Right. Well, the L is a unit of measurement that we don't specifically use anymore. So it's pretty confusing. Originally, an L, that unit of measurement, was the same as the cubit. The term actually comes from ulna, which Mm. is the Latin name of the bone of the forearm. So I'm I'm sure your listeners have heard the cubit is from the elbow to the fingertip. Yes. So you get roughly 18 inches. An L is a different term that derives from the Latin ulna, which measures the same unit. So six of one and a half dozen of another. So 3,000 L's, these guys were pretty large, 15, 20 feet. They're a lot bigger than what you get in the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, very tall. The biblical record doesn't have anything as outlandish as 3,000 L's. We have Goliath who gets a measurement, and there's a difference in traditional Hebrew text. Goliath is six cubits in a span, which is about nine feet, six inches. Yeah. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, though, Goliath is four cubits in a span, so it's about six, 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 eight, something like that. There's at least one other biblical giant mentioned that's a little taller than that, that doesn't really get a name, but Goliath's the more famous one. Mm. But it's far more comprehensible 
than something like 3,000 L's. And so scholars are typically going to look at 3,000 L's and say, okay, this is quite an exaggeration here. <laughs> there are textual problems in the verse as well. But nevertheless, both records, both the Bible and Enoch, have the offspring of the sons of God, and Enoch's term for them is the watchers, being you know more than human. There's something unusual going on here with their parentage and, and the nature of who they are. Right. Well, sons of God, in Genesis 6, Enoch has sons of heaven, which I would think is what I believe, that the sons of God are angels or fallen angels. So the sons of God or sons of heaven are heavenly beings, not human beings. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, the exchange there, sons of heaven, sons of God, is akin to, you know, what we read in a book like Matthew, where we have the phrase kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. There's really no difference because there are places in the Bible where heaven speaks, heaven does this, heaven decided that. When we know, it means that God decided this or that. So heaven becomes sort of a way of referring to God himself. And that's kind of what you have here, sons of, right. sons of heaven, sons of God, the same celestial point of origin. Right. Well, you point out, and I never realized this before, but the 19 names that are preserved or can be reconstructed, 16 of them are compounds with L, meaning God, uh, Coca B-L, Tamiel, Ramiel. So Mount Hermon is the place of the God who is in Dan. <laughs> I mean, up there. <laughs> Tell us about the significance of that, because I think when you look at like Matthew 16, 18, and we'll get to that, but the fact that L, these names are compounds with L, I think that's very significant. Yeah, I, I would agree, because in biblical parlance, the God who is in Dan, the references to Dan are more familiar to us because when the kingdom splits, we have a false system of Yahweh worship set up by Jeroboam and those who follow him. They don't want the people going down to Jerusalem. They want them to stay up in the north. They forbid going to Jerusalem. They create their own system of worship. The calves, the whole bit. And this begins the descent into idolatry. Not begins it, but it accelerates the descent into idolatry on the part of the 12 tribes. And that is significant because the place where that worship was centered was at the foot of Mount Hermon. This is where Jeroboam's, you know, northernmost alternative center of Yahweh worship <laughs> was located. Right. And right. In, in Jesus' day, you know, adjacent to that, we had Zeus worship there. Zeus was called by his followers in the Hellenistic period, Hupsistos, the Most High. Again, it's, it's a jab at the God who really is Most High, the God of the Bible. So this is the place for that, but it actually has even a longer history. You can trace the history of Mount Hermon all the way back to the Sumerians. Hermon was considered the forest of Hermon, the forest of Lebanon. These locales were specifically thought to be the seat of the gods. This is where all of the rebel deities in the biblical worldview right. wow. hold counsel. This is the place. And lo and behold, you know, we have them descend here in the book of Enoch to hatch the plot, to corrupt humanity, to ruin God's attempt to restore Eden, and ultimately to lose to the showdown, you know, right there at the foot of Mount Hermon with Jesus, the so-called Gates of Hell passage, which again, it's very interesting, the juxtaposing of the imagery and the history of these places and their gods couldn't be any more dramatic. Right. In Matthew 16, 18, when Jesus says that the gates of hell, or more literally the gates of Hades, 
will not prevail or overcome or overpower the church. He was saying that in the vicinity of Mount Hermon. Now, I think that's very significant. So for Peter and others, the netherworld will not conquer the church. That's exactly right. We have these old church historical debates and the gates of hell. You know, your name's Peter. Upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. And Catholicism says, oh, well, Peter's the first pope. The church is founded on him. And then Protestants say, ignore those Catholics. The rock here is not Peter himself, but it's, it's God, because God is called a rock in the Old Testament. So none of us should be Catholics. And then they bicker back and forth. If you actually go to the site, there's a huge rock there. Mm. overlooking the whole cult center. It's upon this rock. Jesus is saying, right here is where we're going to start the program that will facilitate everlasting life. The gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church. They're not going to be able to withstand the church because the church and the body of Christ, through the resurrective work of Christ on the cross, is the solution for death. Mm. Okay, We're going to reverse it all right here. And so Jesus isn't talking about who gets to be the first pope. (laughs) He's talking about turning Satan's dominion, because Satan became Mm, the major Lord of the Dead figure. We're going to turn his dominion into his own tomb Mm, and seal him up in it. Fantastic. I think the church needs hope today because we see so much darkness, and there is darkness. And I remember several years ago, I first time I chatted with you, we were speaking about Mount Hermon and Matthew 16. And since that time, my eyes of faith have been opened in the sense that we see so much darkness in the world, but Jesus made some tremendous promises and we see so much demonic activity. I believe it's devilish today, but he gave this promise and he said that the netherworld will not conquer the church. And I think we need to underscore that and listen. And sometimes we get into the debate, who's the first pope and so on and so forth. There's something much more important here. It's a whole lot bigger. Yes, yes. Mike, wow, thank you very much. And we're looking forward to having you on our next program. So friends, please be sure to tune in. And we're going to continue this fascinating discussion with Dr. Mike Heiser. Michael Heiser will continue this fascinating look at the Book of Enoch next time. Get the complete two-day conversation on CD by calling 1-800-652-1144 or order online, swrc.com. Today in our Resource Center, we have the Book of Enoch and a companion to the Book of Enoch, Volumes 1 and 2 by Michael Heiser. The Companion Book of Enoch was written to help students of the Bible understand and appreciate this important and influential ancient book, Enoch. Get all three books for a gift of $35 or more when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. And you can always order online, swrc.com. All orders over $100 receive free shipping, so call right now. In the Bible, God always gave warning before judgment. Are the problems we are facing in the world today a warning before divine judgment? Today, on A Moment of Prophecy, James Collins discusses God's warning signs as the world turns. Several years ago, there was a popular soap opera called As the World Turns. 
Today, as I and many other Christians take a look at the current events in our world, I'm made dizzy as our world turns. All the chaos in the world today has many of us asking, are we living on borrowed time? Several Bible prophecy teachers have actually stated that very question, and I would have to agree with them. We are living on borrowed time. Before God destroyed the world with a flood in Noah's day, he warned everyone that his judgment was coming. Noah preached God's message of warning for 120 years, and no one listened except those in his family. When the time was up, it started to rain, but not before he removed Enoch from the earth and secured Noah and his family safely in the ark. Before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, they were warned. Then his fire came down from heaven, but not before God removed Lot and his family. Before God destroyed Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, they were warned by Jonah in about the 9th century B.C. They repented at that time, and they were saved, but eventually Nineveh was destroyed because they went back to their old ways of corruption. God warned Israel, the northern kingdom, until they were finally taken into captivity by Assyria around 721 B.C. God warned Judah also until they too were taken into captivity by the Babylonians around 586 B.C. God has always provided warnings before his judgment. And he's warning our world today through all the signs that we see around us that his judgment is coming. The Bible calls the coming judgment several names. Some of them are the time of Jacob's trouble, the great day of his wrath, and the day of the Lord. The coming judgment upon the world is commonly known to us today as the tribulation. Jesus told us the church will suffer many tribulations in the world, but these tribulations brought on by mankind are not the tribulation. When the tribulation comes upon the world, it will be God's direct judgment upon mankind. This day is coming just as surely as judgment fell upon the whole world in Noah's time and on Sodom and Gomorrah in Lot's time and upon Nineveh, Israel, Judah, and other peoples. The purpose of the tribulation concerning the Jewish people is found in Daniel chapter 9. There the Bible tells us that God will use this time to bring the Jewish people to the end of themselves. Then they will come to faith in Jesus Christ. The purpose of the tribulation concerning the Gentiles is to judge the world's rebellion against God. But even through his judgment, many will come to him and they'll be saved. It's always God's desire, even in judgment, that many be saved. Many signs and warnings are provided by God to announce the coming tribulation. But before it begins, Jesus will remove his bride, the church, from the earth, just as he removed Enoch from the coming worldwide flood of Noah's day and took him to heaven. The fact that we're seeing so many signs today of the coming tribulation is an urgent warning that we're living on borrowed time. The church age is quickly coming to an end. No, there are no signs for the rapture of the church. That will be without warning. And then, then the tribulation will begin sometime after. The signs we're seeing today are like signs we receive when a storm is about to arrive. As you know, even before the storm arrives, the clouds start moving in, the temperature drops, there's a different smell in the air, the wind starts blowing, and it starts getting darker. That's where we are right now concerning the tribulation. The tribulation has not yet arrived, 
but the clouds are moving in. The world is getting colder. There's a different smell in the air. The winds of rebellion are picking up, and, and the world is getting darker. How far away is the storm? I don't know. But I do believe that time is running out. A hundred years ago, there weren't even close to the number of signs that we see today. That all started to change when Israel became a nation on May 14, 1948. Then on June 7, 1967, Jerusalem came under Israeli control in the Six-Day War. Since then, the signs have gotten rapidly more numerous and more severe. Today, as the world turns, the signs are actually hard to keep up with. Today, the headlines scream out about epic natural disasters, increasing immorality, the explosion of cults and demonic worship, the proliferation of false Christs, the rise of apostasy, wars and rumors of wars, famines and pestilences. In the book of Daniel, we find that Daniel was confused by the information that God had provided him concerning the time of the end. In Daniel 12.4, the Bible records what God told him. God said, But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. You see, it wasn't meant for Daniel to understand, so God told him to just seal the book. And when the time was right, those living at the time of the end would understand the signs. And that time is now. God has unsealed the book, and today he has opened the minds of his own to understand. As the world turns... The sands in the hourglass of time are nearly depleted. The time is now for all who will to recognize that we can almost see the finish line. Jesus is coming soon. And that's a joyous thought for all who know him as Savior and Lord. It can also be a joyous time for anyone who will come to Jesus today and be saved. Sure, judgment is coming. And that judgment in the tribulation is going to be beyond awful. But all who belong to Jesus Christ will not experience his judgment, only his salvation. Jesus' words to Jerusalem can apply to anyone today who will come to him and be saved. Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together? even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Come to Christ today and be saved. Come to Christ today and escape the coming tribulation. This is James Collins reminding you that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The Book of Enoch is an ancient Jewish religious work ascribed by tradition to Enoch, the great-grandfather of Noah, which played a crucial role in forming the worldview of the authors of the New Testament, who were not only familiar with it, but quoted it in the New Testament. The Book of Enoch provides valuable insight into what many ancient Jews and early Christians believed. Michael Heiser's two-volume Reader's Commentary to the Book of Enoch sheds light and brings clarity to these ancient texts. Get both books by Michael Heiser and a hardback version of the Book of Enoch for a gift of $35 or more when you call 1-800-652-1144. Or you can order these resources online 
swrc.com. Tomorrow, Michael Heiser will continue to help us make sense of the Book of Enoch. Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station or by subscribing to our daily podcast. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.